Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's why I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Do you just talk about death? Yeah. I mean, I really murdery thingy 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 and we're recording. And we're recording. So it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry for the delay, but I would like to open up the topic of mental health. Correct. And its importance. Yes. And that I personally suffer all the time, every morning, all the time Mac, you of can't, my life. You can't do that because it's loud. Come on, Mackie Moo. Um, we have and, a cat now, too. Yes. So we took a couple of mental health dates, which is good. And now we're ready to record. Yes. So thank you for continuing to bear with us. Note that, (laughs) and I liked this, I think I heard it from Marcus Parks. Uh Uh-huh. He said, mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Good point. Yes. Good point. And Marcus knows of what he speaks. Yes, I agree. Dog meat. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't know what we're talking about, you guys should really listen to the last podcast on the left. Last podcast on the left is not for everybody. I'm going to put that out there right now. It's not for everybody, but try it out. Because if you like it, it's amazing. You have to listen Uh, to, like, either episode... An episode between 1 and 10, and then an episode between, like, 200 and 300. Like. <laughs> it, it gets better. It gets much better as time goes on. You can do that for us, too. <laughs> yes. I hope to think that we also got better and are getting better and continue to get better. And who should go first? I think you should go first. Okay. So, um, I am going to be doing a classic serial killer. You said this is a two-parter? Yeah. Yes. It's definitely going to be a two-parter. So, essentially... I'm going to be talking today about the crimes associated with what's called the Monster of Florence killings. So the the Monster of Florence is um, really one of the most truly disturbing and infamous crimes in all of, um, certainly the most probably that I've ever heard of in, in Italy, one of the most in all of Europe, including Jack the Ripper and everything else. Um... And it's weird, though, because it's it's strangely not very well known in the United States. 
And that's a point that, like, the the book that I listened to, an audiobook um, that uh, the author Douglas Preston made, that he's, like, a thriller writer, right? Like, he does this for a living and, and is really into this stuff. And when he visited uh, Italy for the first time in, like, the 2000s or something, um, he had never heard of it before and, and was told about it. And that's um, a lot of what I'm going to get into in the second half of my story about this. But in the in the first half... I'm going to be really focusing on the the victims, of course, and, and the crimes themselves, yes. because it's a lot. This story is a lot, <laughs> um, both in terms of the, the, the content itself. It's very, very disturbing, and I'm going to be getting into some things that are, if you, you know, need to turn it off or whatever, like, that's fine. Uh, as, El, as last podcast on the left says, some gold star material in this Ooh. one. Um <laughs> But Turn yeah. it off! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, no, this is going to be the Monster Florence or, and I'm going to be doing a little bit of Italian. I don't speak Italian, I don't know, but it's fun to try to say. Um, Il Mostro di Firenze okay. is, is the Italian name. Firenze is the name for Florence in, in Italian. Um, and that's uh, the name that was eventually given to the killer once, of course, they realized there was, in fact, a serial killer going on. Because, you know, just like most of these, part of the mystery is, right... Are all of these killings connected? And we pretty much know for almost all of them, but it's a little subtle. And the first one may or may not be. So this may have started in 1968, or you could start it from 1974. So we'll we'll kind of get into it all in, in specificity. Um, but um, you know, my like I said, my main source. And if if you want like real good detail, lots of detail on this, is a book called The Monster of Florence: A True Story. Uh, published by Mario Spezzi, um, who's an Italian journalist who's been following the case since the very, very beginning. Like, he was at, I think, the second crime scene in 1981. Oh, wow. Like, first one on the scene, uh, right after the police, because he happened to live in the same neighborhood. Oh, that's creepy. And Ooh. followed it all the way through now and became a part of the story, as we'll get into in the second part uh, a couple of weeks from now. Um, but... You know, it, it it's just such a, a sprawling, sprawling mystery. So, um, like I said, this time we're going to focus on just the crimes themselves. And then next time we'll get into the really multifaceted investigation that went on for decades is still going on um, and, and everything that stemmed from that. So before getting into the crimes themselves, though, I think it's important just to give a little bit of, like, some context. Um, oh, okay. Are you Okay. <laughs> That was Max' head hitting the table that we put things on. I, th- I think he's, he's okay. Fine. I don't think he got a concussion. He he didn't take that hit. wasn't any worse than the two that uh, uh, Mahomes took today in the Super Bowl. So I think it'll be fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my god! Um, and you didn't. Um, so anyway, a little bit of context. So um, it's traditional in Florence for young people to live. Uh, with their parents, like, all the way up until they get married, right? So if you're, you know, sort of involved with somebody, you you go out in your car and you park in the hills at night. I mean, people do this all over the world, right? But apparently it's, it's, it's a thing in Florence, right? And people know about it. Um, and there's a more or less open secret that um, voyeurs um, that they call Indiani... Um, Italian, you know, Indian, because they're creeping around. This is their thing. Not, I'm not saying this is their thing, um, but they call them Indiani. And um, the monster, of course, of Florence would have well known that 
these people were out there as well, oh. right? Easy pickings in a sense. Um, by the way, apparently there was this whole culture of really gross culture of these Indiani who would meet in local bars and discuss the best spots. Um, Ew, to like look at people? Mm-hmm, they would call them the good cars, the spots where you could find the good cars. And um, they would even like exchange money, whatever, like with the people who were doing it. No, um, like, like with each other, like for information and stuff like Um, that. And I'll give you my spot if you give me a hundred bucks. As long as you're not hurting anybody, right? Well, I feel like spying on people is hurting people. Oh, (laughs) just well, you. I feel like for voyeurism, you'd want consent, right? Yes, that's that's sort of the whole thing. Like voyeurism is fine, but you should let somebody know that you're. If that's what you want. Yes, if that's exactly. what you want. Exactly. All parties must consent. But ju- yeah, just to be clear, in this instance, they did not. Okay, I wasn't so, sure. No, no. Um, yeah, this is sort of a whole separate group of people who's like getting together, you know, just in order to set up these spying sort of missions. Gross. So yeah, then they would go out there with their binoculars, with cameras, flash <gasps> Ooh, cameras. That's creepy. That's creepy. Yeah. Um, I wrote on my write up, very creepy. So that's good. Um, and. <laughs> Um, almost all of the victims were uh, uh, from the, the the lovers that were out there, right, being spied on. It should also be noted, again, just a little bit of context, that the justice and the police system work quite differently in Italy than they do in the United States. For example, according to Douglas Preston, um, quote, Italy has two police forces, the civilian polizia and a branch of the military known as the carabinieri. And they operate independently and often antagonistically, mm. especially in high-profile cases. Mm, Close quote. Not good. Right. And we see this, of course, in the United States as well, right? Obviously. Federal and state and local. And it's always a fucking pissing match for some reason, right? Who said you take over this case? This is my case. We'll get it's into a, my town. a lot of that in the, in the second half. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I'm taking over. This case has crossed federal lines. <laughs> yeah. So, um, as with a lot of these cases, um, at first, no one really knew that there was a serial killer, right? So, when the first victims died, Pasquale Gentilcore, who was 19, and his girlfriend, Stefania Patini, who was only 18, mm. when they were killed on September the 15th of 1974, you know, it was seen, of course, as a, a tragic and a very horrific incident. Um, but in time, it would be seen as... Um, very indicative of what would become to know, you know, be known as the monster's modus operandi. Um, so, sort of to set the scene, they were out there making love in Pasquale's Fiat 127, parked near the Borgo San Lorenzo, you know, sort of a secluded spot in the hills near Florence. And uh, this was one of the really popular spots for lovers, right? Like I said, the Indiani, this is one of the spots they would definitely have known about to go to, that people would like to park at. And it was near this discotheque um, called Teen Club. And that was um, where they were supposed to have gone to meet their friends, but instead they were out canoodling mm-hmm. in the car. So the monster would have approached the car in the dark. By the way, he always um, went out on moonless nights, it's another, like, uh, very consistent part of his M.O. And very creepy, like, very horror movie-esque. Um, and he would have sort of, you know, lain in wait right until his victims were utterly unaware of the danger that they were in. And then he approached the car and quickly killed Pasquale with a gunshot to the head. And Pasquale was found slumped to the side, sort of against the broken window. Um, Mario Spezzi, when, when he 
and I think he actually went went to this um, one as well, that it, it almost looked like he was sleeping. Um, oh. So, it, you know, obviously it was very sudden, right? And the window was shattered, and there was a small black mark on Pasquale's temple, which was the only sign of trauma on him. Stefania's body was found strangely posed away from the car. It, it all looked very much... Yeah, and this is, again, a thing with certain serial killers, right? Where clearly he had taken the body out and and put it in, in a particular pose, right? As, as if he were creating a scene. Um, and she had also been both shot and her body had been stabbed um, with fairly... Um, surface wounds 97 times in a pattern um sort of going all around the the front of her body and again this is the really really disturbing part um a grapevine from a a nearby field had been inserted into her vagina was that his was that a uh his part of his mo the insertion yeah, well, was that something that well happened? not that particularly but something similar as we'll okay. as we'll come to see sort of a um almost an escalation from that um okay. th- this we don't know necessarily this was his first kill and it, it very well may not have been but we'll as we'll see it it's gonna escalate from here i have a quick question how much psychology are we gonna get into the second episode. Okay. Okay. Because we'll, we'll lit- I have so oh, many yeah. no, questions we'll, that I'm like literally sitting here trying to keep my mouth shut. Okay. Like- yeah. Don't ask too many questions. <laughs> but because um, it can get long. But um, there's literally like a, a report from the behavioral science unit from the <gasps> FBI that we'll talk about next time. I must read. And it. sorry, I keep saying next time. Well, there's a lot of, of uh, info here as well. So um, there was no evidence of sexual assault per se, okay. and there was no DNA, no fingerprints. Um, no nothing, pretty much. She almost never left any trace after the killings, and there would never be any um, evidence of sexual assault. And again, when we talk about the profiling, that's going to be part of it. And there were no signs of a struggle. And this is part of, the, in the reconstruction, why they think he crept up, why it all happened very quickly. Um, he tended to do these sort of ambushes, right? And it would be seven years until the monster would seemingly strike again. Um, a relatively lengthy hiatus, and there are different right, theories as to why. Um, in the FBI report, they posit perhaps that he lived in a different place um, from 1974 to 1981 and then returned you know, to Florence when the killing started again, perhaps. Perhaps he just took a long hiatus, which is not uncommon in serial killers. Um because perhaps part of it is that they're reliving the crime, right? And the more you relive it, the less vivid it becomes, and then you need yeah. to kill again. So, on June the 6th of 1981, Gian, uh, Giovanni Foggi, um, who was 30, and his fiance Carmela Denuccio, who was 21, were killed. Again, while making love in, in the picturesque hills surrounding Florence. And... As with the previous killing, the man, Giovanni, was killed very quickly and simply with the gun, right? Mm-hmm. Seemed to be uh, the monster's intent, right, to take out the man, presumably because he would have seen him as the, right. you know, um, uh, uh, possible aggressor in that yeah, situation. It's one against two. R- right, and you just eliminate the one, and then it's one against one, and it's you and, and the woman who's just seen her boyfriend, partner, be killed right in front of her, right? And as with... Um, you know, the killing as well. Carmelo's 
uh, the previous killing as well, the, uh, Carmelo's body was found some distance from the car posed. And this time, um, strangely, w- with a, a gold chain in her mouth. What? Totally stripped nude, but with the gold chain, like, hanging in, in her mouth. Very strange. Um, and she had also been shot and also been stabbed repeatedly. Um, but there was also, like I said before, a seeming escalation. Um, her entire genitalia had been cut out and removed in three quick strokes with a notched knife. The way that, that the wound was, they could tell that it was a knife that either would, had been broken at the tip or was like a scuba knife, did, which we'll, we'll get into later. Did they, did they find it? No. No, n- none of the um, missing body parts were ever found. What? Um, have ever been found. And, well, with one exception um, that's very disturbing that we'll get to at the very beginning of the next episode. Okay. So suspicion quickly fell on a certain Indiani, you know, voyeur, um, who may or may not have witnessed the crime um, or may have just seen an early news report of it and then was talking about it with his wife and some other people. And because the police thought that he was talking about it before anyone knew that it had happened, he was immediately arrested. And um, he spent about three months in jail. Jeez. But eventually the monster would strike again. And it did not actually seem to be that, that person. So less than five months later, on October 23rd of 1981, um, with the other suspect right um in jail i guess he was in jail for a little bit longer than i thought um the fifth and sixth victims were killed um if you count the the older killing stefano baldi 26 and susanna combi 24 um were soon to be married like they were like weeks away from from getting actually getting married when they were tragically and horrifically uh horrifically killed and and by now the ammo of the monster is becoming all too familiar, right? Um, again, he struck on a moonless night. Again, his victims were lovers parked in the hills around Florence. Stefano was shot, um, seemingly first. The same brutal mutilations had been performed on Susanna. And as would become a disheartening trend, the suspect was released when the killer struck again, right? Yeah. This is this is kind of going to recur as, as we get um, oh, further man. into things. And at this point, as you can imagine, right, hysteria and conspiracy theories. Uh, apparently, conspiracy theory kind of thinking was, was very much um, of this part of Italy, or Italy in okay. general, I guess, but especially Florence and, the, and Tuscany, this part of Italy. And um, it had really begun to take root of the community. You know, a lot of recriminations, a lot of wild theories, and um, inevitable comparisons, of course, to Jack the Ripper. Yes, inevitable. Yeah. And other famous serial killers, but especially Jack the Ripper. And um, the monster, you know, Il Mostro di Firenze, um, gained his moniker after this killing, Mario Spezzi, um, who wrote for a Florentine paper, La Nazione, uh, dubbed the killer Il Mostro di Firenze and sort of defined the parameters of uh, in the public sphere of what the MO was and the fact that this was a serial killer and kind of what, you know, was really happening and trying to cut through those conspiracy theories and the misinformation, right? Um, that was sort of his mission as as everything was going on. 
and um, the killings abated for a little while after that again until June 19th of 1982. And this is another thing. It always seems to be one in the summer and then one in the fall, right? Yeah. So it's, again, there, 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 there are these very strong patterns. And it was on June the 19th, 1982, another moonless night, when um, the killer would, would strike again. But things did not go as smoothly this time. Uh, this one's a little bit different. So as with the other killings, though, the young couple, um, Paolo Minardi and Antonella uh, Migliorini, if that's how you say that, um, and <laughs> so it's this uh, sad little detail, right? Their friends nicknamed them Superglue because oh. they were so devoted to each other and just... Oh, I mean, stop! Kind of like you and me. Like, they, they apparently they just spent all their time together. Oh. It, and it's very, very sad. Um, but, you know, that's that. I, I wanted to put that detail in there because I feel like it also humanizes them, yeah. right? All of these people were real people with whose lives were, were cut short, right? Um, and sort of taken in the mid-stride of the, you know, meat of their lives. Very passionate and happy. And exactly. Um, and that's how they all, yeah. you know, you, when you read about them, you know, um, that's how they all seem. They're all described as these, you know, very outgoing, just great people, um, just randomly killed by this literal monster, a uh, little literal horror movie monster who would would come to be part of a horror movie Hannibal. I mean yeah. Hannibal and Hannibal Lecter or in uh, um in the Hannibal Lecter movies, right? The second one is literally partly based on this. So, yeah, literal horror movie. So, um yeah, to to get back to the to what actually happened, um they were being a little bit more cautious because they knew these things were going on, right? So they weren't parked, like, in the woods. They were parked, like, kind of in a byway near a f pretty busy street oh, okay. um, where this actually happened. But irrespective of that, the monster still stalked them. Bold. Um, until, yes, very bold, until they were um, actually, you know, engaged in the act. And um, that was when, again, the monster swooped down onto the car and attempted to kill Paolo, but at this time, he his aim was not true, and Paolo was able to attempt an escape. Um, he put the car in reverse and sped backwards, and unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, unfortunately struck an embankment, um, kind of a little, you know, um, ditch on the other side, right, which prevented him from getting away. He was kind of stuck there, um, and he... Um, the monster rather came up, you know, to the car and, and, you know, quickly dispatched them or so he thought. And, um, they're at this point, they are essentially right next to the busy road where cars are going by and a car stopped because they thought that there was an accident uh -huh. to come and help. And it seems at that point, the monster slipped away, um, but could have been caught at that point, presumably. I mean, he was like right there. And, um, Antonella was not, her body was not mutilated. It just seemed like he, he didn't have time to Wait. do the thing that he usually did. Wait, they were, they were dead? They didn't uh, survive? Antonella died at, at the scene of, of her wounds. Um, but Paolo would not succumb to his wounds until he was taken to the hospital and he didn't Holy die until the next day. Shit. But he didn't say anything. He, he wasn't able to regain consciousness or anything. Oh my God. Yeah. 
So, yeah, that one's, like, especially crazy. So, um, 12 days after this sort of half-bungled killing, right, an anonymous letter along with an old clipping from La Nazione was sent to the police headquarters in Florence. We don't know if this was sent by the monster by or by whom. It, we, no one, we never found out, right? It was completely anonymous. And they, they sort of did that thing, right, where you, you clip out letters from, uh-huh. again, like a horror movie, right? Um, and what it said was, take another look at this crime. And the crime that it was referring to, the clipping, right, that was there, was a 1968 double murder. This is the earlier murder that I've been talking about, which superficially seemed very similar to the more recent monster murders, right? Um, And when investigators kind of started looking into it, um, they discovered that the 1968 murder had been of a man and a woman having sex in a car around Florence. They also found that, quote, Through a bureaucratic oversight, the shells collected in 1968 had not been disposed of. They bore on the rim the unique signature of the monster's gun, close quote. And this this whole, I'm going to explain. So that unique signature was caused by um, a faulty pin within the firing mechanism that caused unique marks on the shells when it was fired. So it's, in in, in essence, a, a signature of that gun that is there because it, it has that unique, um, you know, sort of, like, bend in, in one of the firing pins. Did and they mean- found this um, on the shells that were recovered at all of the scenes of the murders. Oh, so there was, like, evidence including there. the 1968 so we know dispositively that the same gun and the same bullets from the same box were used in all of these murders now that doesn't mean it was the same person right i want to make that clear but we do know that it was always the same gun okay okay and you said this was 1968 right so well before so this was you know oh, six years before okay. the first murder Okay. Um, but but it was they know that it was ex- the exact same gun, and the really weird thing, you know, that was really puzzling to the police when they when they looked into this 1968 killing was that it, it was not a cold case. It had been solved. The murderer went to jail for like 13 years, and um, the woman who was killed, Barbara Locci, was actually cheating on her husband, um, who was the convicted killer, Stefano Mele. Um, and he was our, uh, a Sardinian immigrant to Tuscany, the, the region of Italy that includes Florence. And the, the, we'll get more into it next time. It's, it, this 1968 killing, it could almost be a whole episode unto itself. Okay. Like, it's such a mystery. But um, essentially, Stefano did what's called a paraffin glove test, which uh, attempts to establish whether or not you've recently fired a gun when he said that he hadn't. And it came up positive. So at that point, he confessed. He later retracted that confession, but it was never totally clear. And um, he also may not have been completely mentally competent. Um, and that's another kind of aspect of it. In fact, he was he was uh, let go from, or he was given a lighter sentence because he was found to be, um, to some extent, not mentally competent. Mm-hmm. So the motive obviously was clear, right? A jealous husband exacting revenge on his cheating wife and her lover. Um, 
the O.J. Simpson murder, allegedly, was that the opening scene of the Shawshank Redemption? I mean, this is a, a trope, right? You know, the, the cheating wife get, and her lover get killed by the husband. It wasn't hard to understand. And Stefano was easily convicted and, like I said, was still serving time when the 1981 killing occurred. So he could not be the monster. So they know the same gun was used, but essentially they know it wasn't him. So where did that gun go? At the time, he said that he threw it into a ditch. That seems to have been an obvious lie. Um, there was no gun ever recovered, and that's really not what usually happens. And as we'll see, there very well may have been other parties involved. Yeah. And and the, the chain of custody of that gun, we'll, we'll kind of get into it. That's, that's kind of part of the crux of the investigation. Um, but it's a little bit complicated. So... Following this new lead, the police arrested um, a member of the same clan. And this, I guess, is sort of a thing in Sardinia where there's a very, you know, strong sense of your clan and, and the honor of your clan. And this will come into play. So one of his um, members of his clan, Francesco Vinci, they th whom he had um, previously implicated in that murder, was arrested as the possible monster. Maybe he ended up with the gun and later became the monster, is what the police thought. However, to return to the same theme, the monster essentially exonerated him Stay by again. killing again while he was locked up on September 9th of 1983. And this time, again, a little bit differently, um, they were two lovers, they were out, you know, parked, um, but they were German tourists, and they were two men, uh, Wilhelm Friedrich Horstmeier and Jens Uwe Rusch. They were both shot to death through the windows of the Volkswagen bus um, in which they were parked there in, in an olive grove, and it's theorized that the monster may have mistaken one of them for a woman, as Rouche did have long blonde hair. Mm -hmm. So that, that could have been the case. But in any case, the killer didn't exact any mutilation upon the bodies. Uh, he did, quote, tear up a homosexual magazine he found in the camper and scattered the pieces outside, close quote. Again, that, that's uh, Douglas Preston. And so perhaps that had something to do with something. It's not really clear. Um, and even though Francesco Vinci was in jail at the time this killing occurred, the police didn't automatically release him. What they thought was maybe this is a copycat or maybe it was a relative of his who had done the killing to try to exonerate him. Kind of a wacky theory, but I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? And um, in the latter case, you know, it presumably would have been to throw the police off the scent, right? It couldn't have been him. But the police did link it to the monster through the same marks on the bullets, right? So we know the same gun was used. And they arrested another Vinci, um, Antonio Vinci, and essentially tried to play them off against each other and tried to get them to confess over the course of the next um, however long, a long time. And this is another thing. In, in Italy, apparently, they can just keep you in jail for, like, a length of time and, like, put pressure on you. Not that they can't do that in America, but apparently it's easier there. So eventually, or at least at the time, so eventually Antonio was released while Francesco continued to be incarcerated. By the summer of 1984, the next summer, the police were no closer to solving the case. The people of Italy were even more extremely on edge, knowing that um, if the pattern of the monster were to hold, then 
at some point that summer, he would return on some moonless night, right, once the weather got warm. And in July, tragically, the monster did strike again and took his next two victims. Um, Claudio Stefanacci and Pia Gilderontini were only 21 and 18, respectively, when they were killed on July 29th of 1984. And as with all the others, Claudio and Pia were parked in a secluded spot near Florence. Again, he left his signature empty shells. Um, at this point, his veritable calling card. Again, he horrifically disfigured Pia's body, removing not only her genitals, but again, another escalation, also her left breast was, was removed. After 12 known victims in 10 years, not only the Italian, but the European public was, was in an uproar. I mean, this was becoming, um, more than just a national tragedy, yeah, a course of 10 years. That's crazy. 12 victims in 10 years. And these kind of murders with these circumstances. The police were humiliated after going through this cycle of arresting a suspect only to having uh, only to have the murders continue. And authorities, both the poli- Polizia and the Carabinieri, formed a task force called the Anti-Monster Squad, a.k.a. Squadra Anti-Mostro. And they offered a 290,000 um, equivalent reward, um, the highest in Italy up to that point, right, for information leading to the arrest. And uh, posters were posted around, um, tour, uh, tourists were advised, don't park in the hills at night. My God, please do not do this. Despite those efforts, the final two known victims were a, a pair of French tourists, and on either September 7th or 8th, and we'll get into why there's a controversy over the exact date next time, um, Jean-Michel Cavishvili and Nadine Moriot of Audincourt, France, were camping in the woods um, surrounding San Casciano, a small community just outside Florence. And unlike his other killings, the monster didn't approach them while they were in a vehicle, but rather when they were laid down for the night in their tent. That They were camping in like a field, you know, j- just by some woods. Not real far out or anything, but, but just sort of in a field. And the monster approached the tent silently, made a 12-inch cut in its side with the tip of his knife, to lure them out. And when Jean-Michel and Nadine did emerge to see what the fuck was going on, the monster quickly dispatched them. Um, well, quickly dispatched Nadine, at least. She was shot in the head and was killed instantly. Jean-Michel was struck on the wrist and managed to run, um, but was uh, killed a short distance later when the monster um, cut his throat. Ah, fuck. And, again, get really, really gruesome. Um spatter from this wound would be found on branches up to 10 feet up. So clearly this was a a very, um, I mean, there are limits to blood splatter analysis, right? But, but clearly this was done with some, um, a large amount of violence, right? Physical violence. Um, and would have, again, just in, just in terms of profiling and to figure out who this was, right? Would have, um, required a certain amount of strength, dexterity. So when we talk about suspects later, right, keep that in mind. And again, that's the, the only reason I, I bring up that very, very gruesome detail. Um, 
And as before, the monster returned to mutilate Nadine's dead body, including uh, his new escalation of removing the left breast. Why the left? Well, I mean, why Again, would you know the question? There are the answer well, to that. Well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a theory um, it, uh, that we'll get into next time as to why maybe that in particular. That, that's going to cycle back to that 1968 killing. Oh. So, yeah, so it, it, it'll all come full circle. There's so many freaking twists and turns to this thing. So by that Monday at 2 p.m., their bodies had been found by a, a mushroom picker out in the woods, and um, their bodies had begun to decay in the summer heat. And um, again, just because it's going to become important for the investigation, I'll also mention that blowfly larvae had begun to roost in their corpses. And and the reason that's important is because... Um, it's known how long that takes right. and therefore one can use that to try to determine the exact or at least some time of death. That's so interesting. Like forensic, like bug science. Right. Forensic entomology. It is very interesting. There's some really interesting research being done, I, I believe in Australia as well as in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, um, by some forensic entomologists who essentially have open-air graveyards where they do experiments, which sounds very, very gruesome, but it also helps to catch killers. Yeah. So we have to, we need to do that, um, even though it, seem, it seems very strange in a way. So, yeah, this and other, you know, very thorny questions will be um, what I'll be getting into next time. And that, so that that was pretty much it. It was a little bit short, but I I think it was very intense. So I didn't want to do too much of that. Yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> yes. So, and I hope it didn't get too confusing. I, I think it can get a little confusing. So we'll we'll recap next time as well. But so um, yeah, we'll we'll get into these and other thorny questions surrounding the investigations, um, the investigators, um, the suspects, the endless, seemingly endless string of suspects. And um, how the writers Mario Spezzi and Douglas Preston themselves become part of the story that they are researching and writing about. And that's where I'll pick up next time. So that was the, the first part of Il Mostro di Firenze, the Monster of Florence killings. Wow. That was pretty nuts. It's it's very, very nuts. And, and you know, again, the, uh, the focus as always should be on, you know, the the, the victims and the the fact that their lives should not be forgotten in the gruesome details of how they ended their lives, right? Um, they're more than just their killings. And I, I wish it down that I had written down more details about each of them, but, but there are more details out there if, if you'd like to look into it. Um, so my sources were The Monster of Florence, book by Douglas Preston and Mario Spezzi, um, Douglas Preston's article in The Atlantic about this, a transcript of a Dateline episode from June 20th of 2007, hosted by Stone Phillips, which aired on NBC. Um, Wikipedia, the Monster of Florence page. Criminal Minds Wiki, um, the Monster of Florence page. John Philip Jenkins at Encyclopedia Britannica and Tobias Jones at The Guardian. And what was the book called? The Monster of Florence. Wow. And as far as I know, it's the only book in English about it. There's another book, or there are many books about it in, in Italian, but um, there was one that came out soon before theirs by the investigator who ended up investigating them, which presents a very different um, theory as to who was behind this. Um, just to give you a little peek, we're going to talk about 
satanic cults. Um, yeah, of course. Of, uh, always have to of get the course. satanic angle, and Are we'll we and we'll, of course no. we'll we'll talk about the Sardinian connection as we got into a little bit here with with the vi- we'll talk about a bunch of Vinci's, and it's hard. What is that? The last name of of some oh. of the suspects, and it's it this clan, right? It's hard to keep them straight, but we'll I'll try to make sure that it's clear which Vinci I'm talking about at which time. Um, so yeah, that's that's my story for this week. Good job, Maria. That was really good. Thanks, thanks. So, I think we'll just start right off. Um, my mystery is a a motive mystery. Right. Um, who was Terry Danica? Everything starts to unravel when Terry Danica kills herself, September twenty fourth, twenty fourteen. So let's talk about that day. This takes place in Fowler, Indiana, where Terry lived. It started with police getting a call from her daughter, uh, Gina, asking them to check in on Terry and her um, 68-year-old mother, who she lived with, Nina Matoyer. And Gina called the police. She hadn't been able to reach them for days. She was like, please do a welfare check. The police go over there. They hear dogs barking, but nobody answered. Through a window, they could see someone on a couch, like, raise their arm, but, like, seeming to, like, wave them off. And, uh, you know, nobody ever came to the door. So the officers just left because they can't, like, break in, you know, right? right? Um, Called back Terry's daughter, who lived in Chicago, tells her that whoever was inside Terry's house, the person wouldn't come to the door. The police left, and, uh, yes. So, later that night, Terry's son, David, went to investigate himself. So, this is where he finds Terry. Uh, He calls the police at 11.30 p.m. that night when he finds his mother lying on the couch, barely breathing and mumbling. There was an empty pill bottle next to her, a handgun, and a cell phone. Uh, Nina's the mom her suv was in the driveway and police search the house they find clothing and medication that belonged to terry's mother but they couldn't find nina at all uh terry was there but her mother was never not was not found Mm. terry was rushed to the hospital uh went to lafayette indiana but died the next day the official cause of death was quote acute mixed drug toxicity end quote hmm. a lethal cocktail of morphine and how do you say the butalabol butabidol i'm not sure talbidol a sedative okay um turns out terry had a good amount of secrets so we'll start with don huckstep um 57 years old a man who grew up in fowler indiana and had met terry through match.com in early 2013 so you know, Don Huckstep, pretty normal dude. He studied art in, poli- in poli-sci at um, Indiana State, and he studied architecture at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. It's called IUPUI. Ooey-pooey. Ooey-pooey. <laughs> That's what people actually say in Indiana. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's, I went to high school there. Oh. <laughs> Not at Ooey-pooey. I, mean, I, I went that. to high school in Indiana. <laughs> Ooey-pooey. So he Ooey-pooey. went to Ooey-pooey. Yeah. But he never earned a degree earned a degree. Instead, he wound up marrying his hometown sweetheart and starting a family. 
he and his wife did raise two sons and they were actually married for 20 years. Uh, but they ended up getting divorced, unfortunately, in 1999. Terry was 49 at the time that her and Don met. Uh, Terry was also divorced and she had two adult kids of her own as well as a granddaughter. And she, Terry actually herself grew up in Chicago, but she moved over to Fowler, Indiana when, um, you know, she kind of wanted to start her life again in some place new outside the city and uh, a real estate person led her to Fowler, Indiana, a nice little home over there. And she told Don she was a clinical psychologist and that she made a small fortune in real estate after inheriting some properties from an uncle. And Don and Terry met for the first time in October of 2013. And just two months later, they were engaged. Uh, Terry had met Don's parents and his two sons, but he but he had never met her family and any of her friends, even though she traveled up to Chicago every so often to visit her family and to attend to other business. Uh, he never went with her, but you know, he never really had anything to suspect because he was going to spend the rest of his life with her, right? They even planned a early honeymoon to Italy. Um, things started to get weird in the summer of 2014. Terry had been talking about her mother, Nina, who was sick with leukemia. In August, she had come up from Florida to live with Terry so she could tend to her. And according to Ter Terry, Nina got sicker and she told Dawn that she was taking her mother up to Chicago to visit family. On s and she couldn't travel alone. On September 11th, he got a text from her that read, quote, my mom passed last night. I don't want to talk right now. I just wanted you to know as soon as they release her, I'm taking her to Florida. I'll call you when I'm ready, end quote. And, you know, of course he understood. Uh, the uh, My main article from Indianapolis Monthly noted that they had talked about death before and neither of them handled it well. Mm. So he actually didn't hear from Terry for several days. Um, and on the morning of September 20th, Terry called, he got, he gets a call from her, her, Terry called Don and told him she was back in Indiana. And so they, um, made plans to have dinner at his place in Lafayette the following evening so they could catch up. Uh, that night, about six hours later, Don gets a text from Terry saying, quote, I'm not going to be around anymore. Please don't call me or come by my house. Believe me, I'm doing you a huge favor, Terry, end quote. Oh my God. So imagine you are engaged to this person it is she's the love of your life y'all bought a house together and everything you're about to go to italy in three weeks and you get a text that says that yeah I mean, if it were me i would the first thing i would think is is this her exactly. has she been kidnapped That's what he thought too he was like is this a joke is this actually her like what's going on um and yeah like i said they were playing take an early honeymoon they were set to go to italy in three weeks they even like uh, spent a lot of money remodeling the kitchen in the house. You know, there was real commitment. A few days later, Don drives up to the house they were planning to share and drop Terry's belonging off, belongings off on the back porch, but she wasn't there. He didn't, he didn't see her. A week later, a friend of Don walks up to him while he is um, at his home. And I think the article said he was like putting Pepsis in the fridge or something. He was in his, in his garage. And it was his ex-girlfriend that actually walks, walks up to him and she says, Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Are you doing okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Like, how are, how are you? And she's like, oh, 
you don't know, do you? And that's when she reveals that Terry actually was found dead. Or Terry killed herself. She was found in her house with, you know, the empty bottle of pills and a gun. And she actually died in the hospital the next day. Hmm. So he's like, you, so you don't know, do you, that Terry's dead? And he was... M- his, he was, his mind was blown, right? Um, he w- he thought that his friend was, like, mistaken, right? Or confused. He tried explaining that, no, Terry's not dead. Terry's mother is dead. And and uh, Terry's mother's not missing. What do you mean they couldn't find her at the house? She's not missing. Terry's mother's dead. She had died in Chicago. And Terry had taken her remains to Florida um, to be buried. At least that's what Terry told him. Um Don goes to the police in Fowler and meets with Chief uh, Dennis Rice, who's the lead investigator, and he ta- he confirms this story, basically, the, pl- the police do, mm-hmm. and he sits down with Mr. Rice and tells him about his relationship with her. Um, the chief asked if Don knew anything about the gun that was found, and Don revealed that he had never seen it, but he did know about it. And mm-hmm. Terry revealed revealed to him once that she owned a um, a twenty two caliber pistol. Now let's touch on the other half of this story, starting with a man named Milan Likich. In March of 2013, 49-year-old Chicagoan Milan Likich went to Las Vegas to marry his girlfriend Terry, a woman he met online. And he was an electrician at uh, the Ford assembly plant. Milan owned a home and rental property in Hegwish, Chicago, which is on the far southeast side. He never missed a birthday until his 50th in June of 2013. His family had only met Terry once or twice, and they almost never heard or talked to Milan anymore, only text, which was strange for him because he preferred phone calls. And when they stopped by, every time friends and family stopped by his place, he was never home. Uh, The texts shared stories about where he and Terry were. uh, And here's a quote from the, the article. Um, quote, on a cruise, then off to Hawaii or going down to Florida because Terry's mother had just died. Other texts announced that Terry was pregnant with twins and the couple might move to Florida after they were born because Terry's deceased mother had left Terry her estate. Then one of Milan's sisters received a text saying Terry had given birth to twins and that the girl survived, but the boy died, sending Milan into a deep depression. Another text said Terry was dying of leukemia, followed by a message saying Terry had died, end quote. So I know your face is really confused. It's bizarre. It's all very bizarre. Yes. Yeah. By the summer of 2014, Milan's family hadn't heard like seen from him seen him in a year only texts um and one of his sisters was like fuck this you know i know he was all about um please respect my privacy but she um decided to go to his home and get some answers so according to the facebook page put up by milan's family titled milan leakage seeking justice when his sister knocked on his door it wasn't terry who answered but some other random woman uh, who she never met. And when Milan's sister was like, hey, do you know Milan? Like, where's my brother? The woman said he didn't live here. And she tried to slam the door. But, you know, Milan's sister was very adamant. She was like, I will call the police if you don't tell me what's going on here. And she was like, okay, well, I'm actually renting the cottage out back here. And Milan moved to Florida. So now I'm staying in this main house. So he's not here. He moved to Florida. His sister talked to the neighbors, and the neighbors did confirm there were, like, 
moving trucks there the previous weekend, but there were still there still weren't any sightings of Milan. And um, finally, someone gave her a phone number. And it was the same number that they were getting text messages from Mm. that was supposedly Milan. And she called the number and it was now disconnected. The family continued to look further into this. They found out that Terry's last name was Danica. And when they located her Facebook page, they found her living in Fowler, Indiana. So on September 20th, 2014, one of Milan's sisters hopped in the car with her fiance and took off to Fowler. No one answered the door once they got there, when they pulled up to the house. They looked through a garage window and saw a SUV, a Mercury Mountaineer SUV. In it was a baby carrier. Um, a lot of Milan's stuff was in there, quote, including his prized Bears jersey, end quote. Uh, Milan's sister and her fiancé. So what they ended up doing was, like, staking out the place. They parked on the street, and they waited for four hours until finally around 2 p.m., a woman emerged from the house with two small dogs, and Milan's sister recognized her. That's Terry. That's her. Um, they they go up. They confront her. They start taking pictures. Um, his sister asks, where's my brother? Where's Milan? And Terry said, oh, me and Milan separated nine months ago. And... You know, she's asking for more details, and Terry became, quote, very agitated and nervous and ran back into the house. Uh, Milan's sister went to the police, told them about her brother, the very strange circumstances of his disappearance, and how they had led her to Fowler. And on that very same evening, that was when our main man, Don Huckstep, got the text from Terry saying that she wasn't going to be around anymore. So those two events kind of coincide with one okay. another. Note that her and Don got engaged in twenty later of twenty thirteen, like mm-hmm. December twenty thirteen, and her and Milan got married in Vegas in June of twenty thirteen. Wow. Yeah. Some weird so it's shit. Like less than six months later. Right, right. Um and just like that, there are suddenly two missing people connected to Terry Danica. Police Chief Dennis Rice talked about how all of this was weird, right? He told Milan's sister to notify the Chicago police of his disappearance as well. He went to go check on Terry, but there wasn't evi- any evidence of a break-in. There was a gun, but it hadn't been fired. There, were n- there weren't any drugs, just an empty pill bottle. Um, there were no leads. There was nothing really suspicious there. They didn't really find anything. On October 5th, after Milan Leakage family learned that Terry was dead and her mother was missing, they still didn't have many answers. So on that day, Milan's body was discovered in the garage of his Chicago home after his sister, Vi, forced her way into the garage after detecting a foul odor. His body was stuffed in a trash can, dismembered, and covered and, and wrapped in bed sheets. Both legs were severed above or below the knees, and the remains were, quote, mummified. An autopsy was conducted, and although they could not determine the time of death due to decompen- decomposition, they did determine that he was killed by three gunshot wounds to the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. About a week later, October 11th, Terry's son, David, uh, is cleaning out her home when he finds a large bag of trash and after moving it outside he digs through it smells kind of funky only to find the remains of his own grandmother (gasps) nina oh my god yeah forensic revealed that terry's mother had also received a lethal gunshot wound to the head and that a 22 caliber 
caliber pistol was used. And they also noted that, or at least um, I believe according to her son, that Nina wasn't sick. She was fine. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was so also pretty much everything she ever told them was a lie. A lie, yeah. Uh, it was also determined that this was the same make and model of the weapon used to kill Milan. A DNA sample investigators pulled from Terry's gun matched DNA on a chainsaw that was found near Milan's body um, at his home. And police believe that Terry used that to dismember oh Milan. God. The theory is that Terry had shot and killed Milan Leakich for unknown reasons, then shot and killed her own mother, again, for unknown reasons, and when it seemed like people were catching on to her scheme, she overdosed and killed herself. So, lots of other things were revealed after more investigating. Milan's family believes that Terry killed Milan sometime around June of 2013, uh, right when she started opening up and using his credit cards. Mm. That was also shortly before Milan failed up to show failed to show up for his 50th birthday. And according to Chief Rice, investigators were able to confirm that Terry was using Milan's credit cards, but it's not, they don't really know for how long or how much she spent. And they also believe, but they're not sure, that she was embezzling money from her father, who was in a nursing home. Mm. That's called social engineering, everybody. It's common, unfortunately. Elder abuse. Yes. Yeah. Our main man, Don Huckstep, looks back and realizes that some of the things Terry did was indeed suspicious, but at the time, he was head over heels in love with her. He didn't. He, it, it didn't really occur to him. She bought her house when she moved from Chicago to, to Fowler. She bought it with $60,000 in cash. Quote, she always had money. She always had cash. End quote. Don estimates Terry spent at least hundred grand during the year that he knew her on the house they were planning on moving into, on two big screen TVs, the kitchen appliances, and uh, the remodel. She even bought hundreds of dollars of new clothes for Don and even more for herself, and all of it was in cash. Even more bizarre, Don realizes, was the time in August 2014 when he dropped off Terry at the airport, quote, she was headed to Florida to handle some financial matters for her mother, who was too sick to travel. Terry left with a large suitcase. Don guesses it weighed 60 pounds for an overnight trip. She returned to Indiana without the luggage. When Don asked about it, Terry shrugged and said the airlines lost it, but she wasn't worried. Don now wonders if it was one of Terry's elaborate schemes. Why take a big, heavy bag on an overnight trip? And why wasn't she upset about losing it? He'll probably never know. End quote. Yeah, what was in that bag? Right? Ugh. I know, like, uh, uh There are two pretty big questions here. Why and what the fuck was up with Terry? Right. Um, the motive for Milan and Nina's death has never been officially determined. Maybe money? Was it the real estate? Did she have a psychotic break? Was this planned or was it spontaneous? When were they killed? Um, remember that Terry would, I noted this before that, Terry wed Milan in March, a year before her and Don were beating, be engaged. Yeah. And at the time she wed Milan, she was still married to another guy named Nick Jarding. I'm not surprised there was a... I was expecting there to be at least one more. This other guy is actually her, his, her second husband. Of course. And so they had actually been married for 26 years, and she left him in 2012. And Nick was the one who later filed for divorce. And the judge who ruled in the proceeding wrote that, quote, without cause or provocation by the husband, the wife has been guilty of extreme and repeated mental cruelty. End quote. Mm. And 
while this divorce was going on, she was out here on Match.com, like, meeting with Milan and shit. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. Um, Nick Jarding was actually, like I said, her second husband. Her first husband's name is David Mendez. They were high school sweethearts, married when he was 20 and she was 19. And they had a son, also, who they named David, in 1983. And David was the one who found Nina's body oh, okay. later. Um, what's most interesting to me is that everyone before a certain... Like, for example, David Mendez, her first husband was all was very very surprised um he remembered her as quote smart beautiful caring loving end quote his mother her name is rosemary engel um she says quote she was just a sweet young girl we all liked her we didn't see any problems when we heard the news it was unbelievable to unbelievable to us we were as shocked as we could be end quote and terry seemed pretty normal in that she never had a criminal history nothing ever um so it was i feel like that's the thing that really got me was like her husband and her mother you know her first mother-in-law was like no she was a wonderful person this is all very b bizarre and don was like no i was head over and heel head over heels in love with this woman i'm shocked and i so bizarre but there was something dark something yeah. Something sort weird. Of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of right. thing. Yeah. There aren't many theories, because in the end it seems pretty clear that Terry killed her mom and her third husband. But Terry's family thinks that she didn't act alone. Quote, that was a monster someone created. And this is a quote from Dave, uh, David Mendez, her first husband. Quote, that was a monster someone created. That's not her character. It's just not her. Maybe to take her own life, but not her mother's. And to find the boyfriend like that, that has to be foul play, and there's got to be others involved. End quote. And there was one other man that the police look into, looked into named Mark Wiltz, who was friends with Terry, but he was ruled out. Um, he actually came, he was the one who, he actually came to the police and offered up everything. He offered them text messages, too. He was like, here's some weird text messages I got, like, the night she offed herself. Quote, really bad things are coming back to haunt me. Don't want you involved, Mark, so I'm not going to say anything more. End quote. Another one, quote, Mark, I won't be around for quite a while. You have permission to get the title to my car, out my mailbox, and sign my name to it. God bless you and your family. Terry. End quote. Um... And Chief Rice also believes that Terry acted alone. Quote, the only people who really know what happened are dead. End quote. Yeah, depending on what it was, maybe she didn't even know. I mean, if it were truly some kind of psychotic break or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is a crazy, crazy mystery. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And, you you know, you, you we talked about this one a lot because you, you were talking about, you know, is it enough of a mystery or is it... But I feel like it's very much a mystery. Yeah. You know, even knowing exactly what happened, it's still completely a mystery. Yeah. yeah. Lots of, lots of questions. There's so many questions still. Um, they didn't even get much detail from the bodies because they were decomposed. Sure. Um, all they really know is about the gunshot wounds, but no one knows why. No one really knows what happened to Milan during those years that he was with Terry. Right. Um, also, why was she doing all this? Was... Maybe something happened at some point. She became this chronic liar. No, it's so yeah, bizarre. Yeah, it's crazy. And a, a big question I have is, are these the only two people she ever murdered? Ah, ha -ha. Seems unlikely. I, I mean, she was pretty good at hiding it. The article talked... Well, the article 
one of the main people that they interviewed was Don. And he was like, yeah, we were about to go to Italy. And like, I don't even know what I've come back. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Well, <laughs> some light fare Dropped. for a Sunday. Dropped. <laughs> so oh my, my sources, Indianapolis Monthly article by Mary Mills titled Blindsided, a dream engagement turned nightmare. And several articles from Chicago Sun and Chicago Tribune by Denise Williams Harris and Liam Ford. Cool. Yay. Okay. Um, well, I have some weird, weird shit in, in the, the news. news. <gasps> I do. It's Ooh. weird. Mine's not weird. Mine's okay. in a hometown. Okay. But I'd like to hear yours. So mine, it's a, from a New York Times article by uh, Christine Hauser and Heather Murphy titled Opera Singer Danced on SUV Before Running Two Mar-a-Lago Checkpoints, Officials Say. A bad bitch! No, this is oh. not, it's not good. She didn't do this for any reason, it seems. Um, oh, sort of being annoying? Come on. No one knows. It's completely inexplicable. Oh. Um, it's So, what, this is what happened, right? Um, this woman, she was acting very strangely... Um, and someone called the police and said, hey, this woman, like, I think you need to come and check on her. And when the police did, she was sitting in her car. She didn't acknowledge the police at all. Didn't seem like she realized they were there. Um, asking her, like, hey, what's going on? At that point, she speeds away. And at some point, she picks someone else up. Not clear who that person was. And then she runs, not seemingly not knowing where she is. Again, just to be clear, not making any sort of political statement has nothing to do with Mar-a-Lago per se. It just oh. happened to be Mar-a-Lago. And runs through two security checkpoints, and the police are shooting at her car. And then she wasn't hit. No one was injured. Um, and then she stops and gets arrested. And she was dancing on her car bef- before. That, that was when she was like acting strangely at first. And she, like I said, she was an opera singer. She was about to go to grad school. Her teacher that she had worked with for years says this is, had, makes no sense. It, no one knows. So Was she high? It, again, there, it, nothing was found. But, you know, thankfully, like I said, no one was hurt. And if she needs help, I hope she gets it. Otherwise, it's just, it's a very bizarre story. But, I mean, obviously she got arrested. That could have been so much worse like yeah. think about she what, was what so happened close to she... kidding some of the officers they literally like jumped out of the way i mean oh people could have been God. killed imagine if she like offed herself and we would have no answers ever or something yeah oh, no it's that's weird. it's a it's a really weird story um but you also have something what was that from the new york times nyt yeah um yeah so mine is from uh it's called news channel 20 ABC, Springfield, Decatur, Champaign. And uh, it doesn't give me an author. It just says it's by the staff there. Mm-hmm. But um, there in in June 12th of 2017, there was a skull found in Kingston Mines, Illinois. And just this past Tuesday, they identified the skull. Oh, there was a skull and a torso that was okay. found in 2017 along the shore of the Illinois River, mm. which is... Uh, why is it Why is it that people find torsos? Ugh, what? so creepy. And they, just this past Tuesday, they identified 
the skull and the torso of 56-year-old John Frisch. And um, so this was investigators from Peoria County, and they'd been they'd been working all this time to find, you know, our John Doe. And what got it was the DNA Doe Project. And when I was listening to it on NPR with Dana Balmer, she was talking about how um, they used 23andMe. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, I used 23andMe. Um, but they say, yes, he would have been 56 years old at the time of his death, but he was never reported missing. Mm. He um, used addresses in Peoria and Hawaii throughout his life. And the coroner says Frisch died from blunt force head trauma. Quote, this was a horrific crime that occurred where John H. Frisch's body was dismembered after his death and then found in the Illinois River, wrote the Peoria County Sheriff's Office. They're like trying to, you know, retrace the days prior, but his parents are deceased and he has very limited family in the area. And Mm. if you know anything about anything about this guy, uh, call Detective Hoffman. 309-657-5532. Okay. Call the tip line. Call the tip line. I'm Dana Vollmer. I'm Dana Vollmer. I love how she says that <laughs> when it's, she's reading I, the news. It's just like, uh, it's funny because that's like journalism. Like, that's right. the format of journalism. But it's funny because she's like, um, uh, there's chaos in the White House today. I'm Dana Vollmer. <laughs> right, right. No, she, yeah, she she's really good at that, like, authoritative voice. Yes. Um, speaking from that like uh, authoritative perspective um no they they do a good job of it uh, wcbu um so yeah i think that's our episode for this super sunday super sunday yes please um congrats novak djokovic on your eighth australian open win good job i love novak so if you're a tennis fan you know what i'm talking about um but thanks for listening you guys and uh hanging with us here on a sunday and, uh, well, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Um, okay. Anything else? Oh, I, I you know, twi- our Twitter page. Follow I put us up, on Twitter and Instagram. You know, um, my Twitter's MarioTex30 if you want to see what articles I'm reading and the albums I listen to each day. And pictures of Mac. He's so cute. Yes, he's been a good, good little cat. <laughs> Mac the cat. Okay, I think we're done. Okay, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.